0: Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Your Project Shepherd Construction Podcast. My name is Curtis Lawson with Shepherd Construction Advisors, and along with my industry expert friends, I am here to guide you through these four key components of a successful project, which are demonstrated by this simple drawing of a house. The foundation is proper planning. The left wall is your team, the right wall is communication, and the roof is proper execution. Have all four of these components in place and your project will succeed. Whether you're building or remodeling a custom home, or if you're an architect or designer looking for inspiration, or maybe you're just interested in building science and high-performance construction, you're in the right place. Please help us further our mission here by tapping that follow or subscribe button, push that notification bell, so that you know when our new episodes drop every week. And now, let's get to today's interview. Hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Your Project Shepherd Construction Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about job site safety and why, as a homeowner, you should care about these things like how your builder maintains their job site, uh, what their safety programs are, uh, if they're in compliance with things like OSHA regulations and standards, things that we don't always think about. Uh, so my guest today is Terry Dusso with Yellowknife Consulting. Uh, Terry's out of Southern California, I think uh, Huntington Beach area to be exact. Um, Terry's been an expert in job site safety programs for over 25 years. uh, And his company, um, Yellowknife, does all sorts of OSHA trainings and they help companies with their safety programs. Uh, And they also have a great cloud-based software to help them keep track of all that stuff, all that paperwork and stuff that you have to keep track of for the government. So, uh, Terry, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Curtis. I'm very glad to be part of this podcast this morning.
0: Is that an accurate uh, description of what you guys do at Yellowknife? Is there anything that you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you, you hit it, you know, the nail on the head there. We do, you know, a lot of training, uh, consulting for clients that, you know, may already have a safety program or they just need a little bit of, they need some support or some help um, and people will come to us for very re- various reasons. Um, sometimes, you know, they have a safety program and safety managers and that kind of thing, but, you know, they see a, like a, a spike in incidents and, you know, they just have too much going on and they can't, uh, deal with it all because, you know, it's a lot of work. And so we might come in and just help them out, you know, on, on a limited basis, depending on their needs. We do the training, we do inspections, site inspections, yeah, a variety of different things.
0: So. Obviously, like in commercial construction, safety compliance is a huge deal. Like you, you always see the safe, the, uh, the, uh, commercial guys, everybody's got their, uh, their vest on their hard hat on all the fall protection equipment, um, on residential, a lot of times, uh, in certain areas, especially you may not see a lot of that. So, um, I think it's a safe, a safe bet, no pun intended, right? Um, yeah. The jobs, the job site safety is kind of at the bottom of the list of consumers um, when they're talking to builders and contractors about their project that that that, that's kind of out of sight, out of sight, out of mind for them for new construction and remodeling for residential. So um, I wanted to talk about why it's important to have those conversations with your contractor before he starts your project. Or maybe maybe even talk about those things with your contractor or contractors who you are interviewing as potential partners in your project. Is that kind of a safe assumption that you know most residential projects? This is kind of off the radar.
1: I would say yes to that. Um, I think if you talk about safety in a commercial or industrial setting, or in aerospace, or oil and gas, uh, that's kind of A lot of my background i work for the oil company so they're kind of like at the tip of the spear for safety and they have high expectations and for good reason Um, in some of the refineries and uh, their retail petroleum sites that they manage you know there's a lot of things that could go wrong so they have to really take that seriously um, because you know obviously they don't want anyone to get hurt But it's also it's a black eye, you know, if you have a lot of incidents on your projects or if your refinery uh, gets uh, receives a lot of violations from the regulatory agencies and they see any kind of trends with worker safety or compliance issues, um, that doesn't look good. Watchdog groups can get a hold of that information and they can do class action lawsuits against the oil companies so you know they don't they don't want any part of that and then in a commercial setting you know it's it's about the same but as far as where it stands on the radar it may it's not as high as the oil companies and then when you get into residential you know the average uh consumer doesn't really know you know what to ask or that might not even be on their radar at all if they're getting let's say a new AC unit or a new roof, or you have somebody coming in to uh, build you a pool, you know, you just really, a lot of consumers just think about what's the price, what's the timeline, you know, and how, how are we going to get this job done? But uh, the, the big question here, Curtis, is why should you care? Mm-hmm. That to me is, is like, you know, the main thing. And as a, As a residential, you know, property owner, or maybe you have apartments and you're doing restoration or rehab and that kind of thing. And safety may not always be, you know, at the top of the list of things that you're going to look for. But a lot of times with safety, if a company has a good safety program, the usually the quality of the work that they do is at a higher level too. And that is something that, you know, you, you wouldn't really think about, but it, there's some truth to it. So, But you have to also ask why would a company not have a safety program? Or if you question them about safety, it may not even be on their radar at all. Uh, and it, it depends on the company, you know, like how long have they been in business? You know, how many employees do they have? And then, you know, in the course of their work that they've done over the years, have they ever been stung? Like, have they had a a serious bodily injury or a fatality or some kind of serious property damage incident? So all those types of things are what would heighten a company owner's awareness enough to maybe make them initiate some kind of a safety program. Then you also have the OSHA laws, you know, to think about. So as an employer, we ha- it's our responsibility to make sure that we keep people safe and we we provide them the training that they need for their jobs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know I, as a, as a construction company owner, it wasn't that much on my radar until a friend of mine, uh, one of his carpenters had their finger cut off in a, in a table saw on a job site. And uh, a bell went off in my head because I watched how many Pieces of plywood. These guys zip through a table saw on a daily basis, and I said, "You know what? I'm going to spend a little more money, and I'm going to invest in a um, a saw stop uh, table saw, which actually has a a sensor in it that detects skin contact and stops that blade within a, a thousandth of a second to prevent fingers getting cut off." So, you know, it's the longer that you're in the business, you see these things happen more and more, and it it just makes you aware that hey, this is something that. Could really affect you know my, my personal uh, liability or my company's liability um, depending on how the on how the company is structured, right? But I think that the longer you're around, the more it's on your mind because uh, ju- you've just seen these things take place, right? Even just things as simple as um, a nail sticking up out of a board on a job site. You know, I think most people in my position now uh, have probably put a nail through their foot. <laughs> I know I have. So you know i I just make a good practice when I'm walking around and I see a board with the nail sticking out. I reach down and flip it over, or I sit there and hammer the nail out of it just just to to cover myself so it's just a kind of awareness it's an experience thing um but I do think you're right that builders who have these sorts of programs in place and who have the awareness are probably doing better work because they're paying attention to the details and and also maybe they have kind of the the uh the training but also like the the administrative staff to help put these things into place like like a one man operation is probably not going to have a safety program maybe he does but somebody who has a decent sized company that has some some administrative uh back office capabilities they're more likely to be tracking these things and so that's a great place to actually hop over and talk about, um, you know, what are some common hazards that we find on residential job sites? I mean, I, I use the example of a nail through a boot and a finger getting cut off. Right. Uh, but, uh, what are some other things that, that, that you see on a, on a daily basis that are kind of the most common residential construction site hazards?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, for, for most, uh, industries, the most, one of the most common hazards is, uh, slips trips and falls and the other one is struck by incidents so uh struck by incidents could be anything from you know something falling off a roof and hitting somebody on the head or you know a piece of equipment being struck by some heavy equipment or that kind of thing so uh the hazard classes you know when you start to really look at them there's a lot of different hazard classes overall but when you you know, when you start to like have certain types of contractors at your projects, like uh, let's say, for example, somebody comes in and they're doing electrical work, you know, that, that's a whole different set of hazards. Um, you might have, you know, shock or, you know, you're looking at electrical cords or any any kind of energized equipment. You know, that's, you know, that's a different type of situation. Like, for example, a friend of mine had somebody come in and she, she was going to do a pool restoration. And I started asking her about, you know, uh, you know, costs and who's doing it and this kind of thing. And it ended up that, uh, I was able to find her a different contractor. The guy, this guy does a lot of pool remodels for hotels and that kind of thing. And he's, he's typically the guy in our area that all the hotels and the big commercial people call. So I had him go over and give her a quote and she said his quote was twenty thousand dollars cheaper than all the rest uh and i and i know that you know the guy doesn't have a safety program right but um they do really good work so she went with him a few weeks later she uh she's going out of town for a couple weeks but she was going to have the pool contractor on site at her house doing the work while she's not home and she thought that's perfect because I don't have to hear the jackhammers and you know all those types of things and I said well who's gonna do the oversight for you and she she didn't know how to answer that she said what what do you mean by oversight and I said well I wouldn't suggest having people working at your house if you're not there to manage them or make sure that everything's you know okay at the end of the day and she said i'd never really thought about that before and i said it might be a good idea to to think about that you know and and it just so happened i because she's close to me here i i was able to kind of help her and i would go over on a daily basis and make sure everything was going okay but uh, the reason people should care about this is because if somebody gets hurt on your property there's the potential that you could end up being sued um so you, what you want to do is make sure that You know, when they get there, it's uh, there's access and there's, you know, not a lot of things in the way so that they can perform their work um, efficiently and effectively and safely. Right. And the same is true for when the contractors uh, leave at the end of the day, you kind of want to monitor and make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, they check out and tell you, hey, we're done for the day. Uh, we 'll we'll be back tomorrow, whatever the situation is, and the reason for that is because uh, it 's just a good insurance policy and a personal policy for if this is your residence or your project, to make sure people are offsite and that they 've left it in a safe condition, because you might have young kids there, uh, and after they leave, you know what 's the situation, what 's it look like? and for example i did a an incident review because i also do incident investigations Mm -hmm. and one of the things that came up was uh this landscaper uh not no i think he was just a gardener and he shows up at uh these people's house every week just like you know my gardener comes on every friday right and so uh the guy shows up and he does his routine of you know the the lawn and whatever else he's doing and he ended up uh having a one of those blowers you know the leaf blower on his back and he must have tripped and fell and he fell into the uh the pool and he Hmm. drowned he drowned it in the pool and the homeowners had no idea they had no idea that the guy was even in their pool so uh later that night Six thirty, seven 7 o'clock, you know, it's getting dark, and they see the guy's truck out there, but he's also the gardener for a few other people in the neighborhood. So they didn't really think anything of it until somebody came and knocked on their door and started looking for him. Mm. So they walk around, and they see his rake, and they see, you know, some tools at their house, and they realize, uh-oh, this guy's in the pool. And he had been there for a while. Wow. These are things that, you know, they're, they're rare, but, um, you know, you, you kind of need to have your thumb on the pulse of what's happening at your house and, or on your, on your property or your projects. And I call it, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's just checking to make sure that, you know, everybody's, you know, where they're supposed to be and they're fit for duty or they're, they're, they're in good condition because, Um, you'd be surprised how many times, you know, these types of things happen and and nobody knows. And in our, in our personal life, like in our, at our homes, you know, I think for me, I've always been a little lax and I just let them, you know, kind of do what they need to do. But I, I see the, I see the, the bad side of things on, you know, job sites and things like that. So now uh, I've had, I've kind of like established some personal policy. Because, you know, I have my family here, too. So if I have contractors here and things like that, and I have, you know, younger girls in the house, you know, I'm very careful about who I want around the house. Uh, because safety, uh, there's, there's an aspect of safety. It's, you know, the security side, too. You know, right. a lot of contractors, we don't, we don't know their history because we don't use them all the time. So it's good to get referrals and those types of things. But, you know, still, if you don't know these people and they're at your house, you have to think about that, the risk level of having unknowns, you know, at your house. And, um, with my friend and and her pool situation, I just went over and monitored the situation on a, on a daily basis. And the other thing I noticed was that they have people that are working by themselves. And I call those loan workers and when you have lone workers and they're working around uh, a pool that's empty and that, you know, they could potentially fall in, they're working around rebar and things like that. There's a lot of risk, you know? And so you, you just kind of have to keep your eyes on it. So for me, that's, that's kind of what I try and do.
0: I think having, having lone workers, uh, is kind of an issue regardless because well, from the security aspect you know kind of one guy by himself is kind of more likely to be sneaky and cause an issue than yeah. if there's a a group of people working to kind of keep each other accountable too um but then I'll, from a from a contractor business business owner perspective as well um the loan worker if that guy gets hurt dies whatever kind of like the instance with your gardener you're not going to find him for a while possibly um so having people work in pairs or work as a team uh, is, is a much more, um, you know, secure situation. I think one of the things that I see as the most, probably the most common thing that I see for, um, lack of, lack of safety is, is fall protection. You know, you, you, you mentioned pe- people getting struck by objects, which is definitely on the list as well. Uh, you see that a lot in framing when people are swinging two by fours around and people dropping things from a height and there's people below, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. but uh fall protection especially is something that i I think contractors don't really pay attention to because it's kind of it's not macho to have to put the safety harness on and strap in and tie off and everything um so we see r- roofers in particular all the time that are just up and down ladders uh they're just throwing bundles of shingles up and down. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, they're, cl- they're climbing ladders with five stacks of, uh, shingles on their shoulder. Right. In fact, I saw, I saw a video the other day, uh, it, and people keep sending it to me of a, of a, 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 roofer carrying a stack of shingles up the ladder, walking up the roof and boom, he fought fall- the, the, the OSB breaks and he falls, you know, 20 feet down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The fall protection is just as one of, is one of those things that until there's been an incident again. Uh, it's probably not on most contractors radar right
1: yeah that's very true and uh and aside from the fall protection itself just the training work from heights training uh a lot of a lot of workers have never had it so they don't really know what the you know what the proper uh, standards are and the protocols so that they don't get themselves hurt and it's you know easy to get hurt when you're you know, asked to work at heights or climb up on the top of a building or a, a roof of um, a, a close uh, friend of mine, my one of my co-workers lost her son on, um, he was 23 years old and he was asked to climb the side of the building. He worked at a warehouse and him and his boss had to go up on the roof, climb the, the, the ladder access to the, to the top. And they took some visqueen and they had to go cover skylights because it was raining. And, you know, uh, they felt like, you know, if they can cover these skylights, the water won't drip through because they had leaks and stuff. So he ends up uh, going up there and covered a bunch of skylights and then went back down to get more visqueen, goes back up. And at some point he slipped and fell through the skylight. And so she lost her son. And, you know, that is something that's so avoidable. And he's just a 23-year-old kid. And he didn't have, you know, the proper training. He was new to the job. And, you know, all of that is so avoidable, you know, with just a little bit of training. He, you know, and some controls, you know, because if the person doesn't have the training, then the employer should know never to send him up there in the first place. Right, And then the experience of even being up on a roof that high, you know, for new workers, I call them short service workers, people that are new to the industry and that kind of thing. You know, we have an obligation to make sure that they're trained properly and that they're they're being monitored, you know, just like the contractors around your house, because, you know, that's the right thing to do Yeah, when you're talking safety it's not always about the laws and the rules and it's like what's the right thing to do and that's what i use to guide me you know um and i think usually you know that's that's a good way to go
0: i think that oftentimes the contractors who are the who are the the, the cheapest the low bidders those are the guys who are more likely to not be using fall protection to be doing stupid stuff to be using untrained workers uh, kind of low, low time workers, um, so when you hire that more expensive roofer, that more expensive framer, that more expensive contractor, probably that guy uh, has has systems in place or has experience with these things. But you know, it it all goes back to you know know what you're getting when you choose the low bidder, right? Like their yeah. experience and and what programs they have in place. So that may be some great questions to ask people uh, if they're hiring that cheap sub or cheap contractor hey what what kind of safety programs do you have what do yeah. you do for fall protection what do you you know do you wear hard hats do you wear yeah. harnesses whatever right maybe a checklist that should be created for for interviewing these people
1: i was just thinking that right when you were saying it you know because um you know that could really help um you know anybody that, you know whether they're hiring a you know somebody to come in and do something at their home or, or something else, but just having a simple checklist that says, you know, who's the highest authority for safety at your company. If you ask a contractor that question, you'll probably, you know, you're gonna, you're, they're probably not going to know how to answer that because nobody's ever asked them, but, you know, or what kind of training programs do you have for safety? You know, and are your workers trained? You have certificates that could back that up. Right, you know, and don't don't just take the surface answer. You know, ask for the certs. You know, things like that. Um, I had a situation that occurred at my. I lived at a different home, uh, but we had a problem with ants. And I'm not a big advocate for spraying because I don't like to use uh, insecticides and pesticides. But this uh, <laughs> the situation went on too long, and I was kind of forced to hire a a pest control company. And uh, my wife had it with the ants in in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I hire this company and they come out and uh, it wasn't expensive or anything, but the guy shows up and he, he could barely speak English. I don't know what nationality he was, but he starts pouring a bunch of, uh, insecticides in the, in these, um, pump up sprayers. And, uh, and and he has like this little uh, dust mask kind of thing that he's going to put on and and i'm thinking i go look at the the bottles and the uh the products that he's using and there's absolutely no way a dust mask is going to prevent him from inhalation exposure from the chemicals and so when i i told him i tried to communicate to him as good as i could but um there, again there was a language barrier but I said, hey, uh, respirator, where's your respirator? And he kept showing me the dust mask. And I'm like, no, no. And I couldn't get it through to him. So I finally called the the manager and I said, hey, look, this guy can't work uh, at my house with this respirator setup um, because it, it's not going to protect him against, you know, the, the hazard, which is, you know, the product, right? So they're like, oh, no, it should be fine. He's used that before. I said, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's not the right thing. And I finally told him, just, you know, go away. I didn't want to use that that company. I don't want the worker to get exposed or be breathing these fumes, you know, if these are toxic chemicals. Because uh, a lot of them, you know, OSHA has these guidelines called permissible exposure limits. And it will tell you how much of this concentration of chemical you can breathe over an eight-hour period. Okay. And when you're talking about insecticides and pesticides, it's not very high. A lot of these, uh, the the chemicals that are in these products are measured in parts per billion, as far as how much, you know, you can inhale. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it doesn't take a lot for you to be exposed. And then they have the IDLH, which is immediately dangerous to life and health. That's a different number. And Some of these things are super toxic and people have no idea what they're working with. So that's why you want to make sure you're getting the, you know, people that are qualified to do the work that they're doing because, you know, something could, something could happen, you know?
0: Well, and and what I see the most are, are painters. It's almost like a badge of honor for the painters to, to not wear the proper uh, respirators. In fact, I've even heard them joking that, you know, the the best painters are the ones with the fewest brain cells because they've killed them all. Because uh, they've been doing it so long, right? But it, it it shocks me to to walk into a house and see painters spraying, you know, especially like the, the oil based paints, which fortunately we're seeing less of the oil based paint these days. Uh, I know out there in California, it's probably non existent now; it's been phased out. But in a lot of the country, the oil based paints and the solvents that go along with that, those are still in use. All the enamels, but you know, we're you know here, at my company, we've transitioned for the most part, to all water-based uh, products. Uh, there's still some some repaints and retrofits where we're matching old stuff where we still have to use the oil base. But, you know, it, it's just amazing how many of these painters work with this stuff. And you, you walk in the house and immediately you get lightheaded. And that guy has been painting in there all day with no proper respirator on. Like you said, maybe he's wearing like an N95 Yeah. Uh, Yeah. mask, which is, you know, hey, it's it's good for covid, but it's not going to keep out the paint fumes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, These guys have to have that that training. It's dangerous to their to their health and their life, like you said.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the employer really needs to be on top of it because there's also other laws. It's not just the training. Like if you have to wear a respirator, you have to be medically cleared to wear a respirator by a physician. And a lot of employers don't know that, so when I go out and do consulting and help a lot of the uh, different companies that I work with, you know I'll ask them uh, like i I literally a week ago just went to a site where they're going to do confined space entry into a sewage pit that's twenty feet deep. It's a lot of uh there's a lot of variables, things that could go wrong uh, because it's a confined space entry, but as we were discussing the project, they said this one's kind of unique. This one has a, it doesn't even have a flat bottom. And there's going to be raw sewage going through this thing. They can't, they can't like shut it down. It's at a a sanitation district, right? So I said, okay, well, the person's going to have to be in full breathing air. You know, we're going to have to set them up in full breathing air. They have to have the training. So they already have this kind of like all lined up, but I just start asking deep questions has the guy been medically cleared when's the last time he had a physical how are we going to get him down there what's the plan for that how are we going to extract him if the guy something happens you know so you have to make sure all these protocols are in place and then you know talk it through it's uh it's a lot this one's going to be tricky but i've i've done a lot of these before so
0: you could not pay me enough to do that job (laughs) yeah no i i i always wonder like How they pick the guy
1: that's going to actually go down, is it the short straw kind of thing? But, you know, uh, the idea is to, you know, they get suited up and they have all the right gear and hopefully they're not having to like be in it,
0: you know, or, uh, but. Yeah, I've watched the videos of those guys working. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting, but you could not get me to do that. Hey the last yeah. thing I wanted to 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 touch about uh, or to, to talk about was um and this is definitely something that I think very few contractors uh, think about and I know that I didn't until we had a hurricane come through and then uh flooding after the hurricane and out in California um I know you guys deal with wildfires and different and mudslides and different things than we deal with here in Texas but I think no matter where you are in the country uh this this conversation is applicable so Here in the Gulf Coast area, you know, we get hurricanes and I've seen videos and and I've seen the aftermath of a house. that's like in the framing stage and then a hurricane comes through and, you know, the next day that house is laying on the ground. There's, you know, it, it blew down. Right. So it's so one part of the conversation is about being prepared for those situations. You're watching the weather. You see that that storm coming in. It's like, okay is what we're doing gonna survive? Can we add some additional bracing? Can we work faster and get it completely dried in and secured, um, but then also picking up the job site and making sure there's no loose debris laying around that's gonna go flying during a hurricane. Or in your situation out there in California, uh, maybe even, hey, if, if there's wildfires in the area, let's let's make sure we're keeping all of our lumber away from an area where it's not protected things like that
1: yeah that's for i think as far as that goes that's uh you know you have to it boils down to planning you know like if you if you know these events are coming uh whether even if it's just rain you know uh we had a project i was working on in la it's a lot of residential homes we were excavating lead from the front yards and backyards of these properties that were contaminated. And we had to shut the job down for a few days because uh, because of rain. So we ended up, uh, we did some random site inspections and and I'm glad that we did because one of the things that the regulatory agency said was, if these properties, you've dug out the the contamination, we want you to put plastic over the exposed area. If overnight, basically, right. So um, but what happened is with the rain, it actually kind of like created pools, because the visqueen, you know, there, there was a depression in these in these properties. So, you know, it made like a pool, which is, you know, a lot of people were still living in these homes while they were being remediated, and they have kids. So now, that's potentially a issue that the person could, they could drown in there. So then we had to say, all right, we're going to have to go get a vac truck and pump out this water. And we had a bunch of properties. So we had to strategize, you know, how are we going to deal with this new hazard? Um, that's pretty serious, but it was like overnight. So you, you think about those things and you learn from experience. And I think in your case, you know, um, What you're talking about with the flooding and everything, anything you can do ahead of time to try and really think it through. And how are you going to close that project down or, you know, button it up so that you're not leaving a hazard behind for somebody else? Or uh, should this flood come through, you're not going to be, uh, you know, having a bunch of property damage incidents or uh, losses associated with damaged equipment and things like that because as a safety person or a consultant, what, what, I, what I try and do is prevent bodily injury, prevent property damage incidents that are costly, and you know any other type of loss that could have a financial impact. So you have to think about all of that stuff. And then in Houston, I know one of the things that uh, I heard about, and I'm not sure if this was really ever on your radar, but I'll bring it up because I think it's good to, to know, is you know the aftermath of the weather event, so people are inclined to want to go right back to their house to see you know what is the level of property damage and you know they were having that problem in Hawaii with the uh in Maui when these homes burned, people wanted to get right back in their neighborhoods and see sometimes it's not safe to do that, and in Houston, I think one of the things that uh that i learned was um you know think about all the different chemical products and paint and stuff like that that you have in your house and all of a sudden all that stuff is underwater some of it's leaked out and you've got a mixture of chemicals uh, some of these homes like you know it was like up on the walls in in the garages There's gas in there, you know, it could be volatile, you know, like you have VOCs from gas, you've got all these different paints and stains and different things that people store, so um, it creates a toxic environment. And most people wouldn't really think about that, but it's probably not safe to go in there and start digging around, you know, to see what things didn't get damaged, you know, until you know it's safe to, to
0: do that. Well, not to mention uh, just the, the 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 mix of the sewage in with the standing water, right? Because when the neighborhood's flooded, the the sewer system's also flooded, and so yeah. you've got you've got all that sewage that's kind of mixed in with the flood water, and it's not something that you want to to get on your skin and get like an open wound exposed to. I was after the last big hurricane we had a few years ago, Hurricane Harvey. We we did a lot of a lot of emergency repairs and then remodeling after the flood. And so I was actually going into some of these neighborhoods to meet people before they were totally drained out, and I was wearing uh, chest waders to protect my body from from that water. Um, but I was bumping into all kinds of things underwater that you couldn't see. There was, in fact, some of our job sites there were there were 20 foot long engineered beams that weighed three, four hundred pounds, and these engineered beams had actually floated several blocks down the street. And so you're walking down the street in two feet of water and, and your feet keep bumping into things, and it's all this lumber that floated away from job sites and and what if that lumber has nails in it and screws and all kinds of stuff plus it's a, it's a tripping hazard it's a hazard to drive your car over you know there's there, there's just so much uh, that you can't see lurking under that water, and you're right, people have this tendency to want to get back into their house as quick as they can and see what the damage is but it's really not a great idea.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing that really would uh, come to mind for me in that situation, like you're talking about the nails and all the yuck yuck in the water, is staph infection, too. You get a staph infection from, you know, just a little poke, you know, uh, uh, you know, step on a nail kind of thing, and then you, you get that all that stuff inside. You never know,
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs> It'll kill you.
1: Yeah, that'll kill you for sure. So,
0: so uh, last thing I want to touch on um, is just so we have a lot of builders that listen to the show in addition to to consumers. So what what kind of um, what are some basic compliance, safety compliance programs, monitoring programs that that residential builders should look at putting into place? Like what what types of training should they be looking at having their employees uh go through what kind of records should they be, should they be keeping also
1: Well, I think um you know the fact that you just mentioned records is really important um because record keeping if there's ever an OSHA um, investigation they're going to ask for training records. So, I think the best way to answer the question is ask yourself what type of work you're doing and you know, do you have the proper like training for your employees? and is it defensible so if tomorrow somebody falls off the roof and you're a roofing contractor and osha comes out and starts asking questions are you going to be able to you know pass that that test and be able to provide them the training records and all the different things that is needed so that you don't end up getting shut down or fined? and so i say use that as your guide and as a bare bones minimum, uh, I think there's different OSHA courses that would be really helpful. Like a, there's a 10 hour OSHA construction course. It kind of covers you know the basics, and even just having that, um, it's a 10 hour course. Some of them could be done online. I prefer the instructor led courses myself. And there's an uh, in if you work in Nevada, you you have to have they have an OSHA 30 that you have to do. Hmm. Uh, and there's reasons for it I won't get into, but that that's a state law. So there's the OSHA 30, the OSHA 10. If you work around any kind of hazardous uh, waste or products and chemicals, there's the OSHA 40-hour HAZWOPER, um, which is Hazardous Waste Operations and Emergency Response. So there's a bunch of different types of courses. But one of the things I'll share that I think is the most basic thing is for any company, if you have an an employee, to do some kind of employee onboarding training. Because a lot of companies don't do that. And so right out of the gate, if you hire a new person, you need to communicate the expectations. What are the safety rules? You know, that should be part of your onboarding training. Uh, maybe you decide you want to do this OSHA 10 or one of these other courses, um, you need to make sure that the, the employees get some kind of training right out of the gate. And I would say, you know, it's an investment, you know, so um, it's up to us as employers to make sure they're trained. But then, you know, having having a way to back that up is important by having the documentation.
0: So I think also making sure they're comfortable letting, letting <clears throat> me you letting their boss or the owner know if there's an issue because sometimes you know on on construction sites it's it's often this this good old boy mentality and you know the old guy might be like uh oh, you know we don't worry about that crap around here you know that's just something the boss makes us do but we, you know we don't actually do that right and so um it's important for them to know who to talk to if if they're not feeling safe or if they're seeing something that goes on that's not safe and knowing that they're going to be heard and not ostracized for for bringing those those issues to light
1: yeah that's uh I think you bring up a great point you know you have to uh, as an employee know like where where's my comfort level and sometimes uh, you know especially like we, we're bringing in all these this younger generation and they they don't have maybe a lot of the experience that others have. So um, I say that a lot of workers get caught or get in trouble when they have the can-do attitude. And it's great when you have workers that are like that because you see them hustling, they want to do a good job, but uh, at what cost? Because you also need them to know, look, if you don't feel comfortable doing something or you don't have the proper training. You need to speak up and it's okay to speak up. And I think that's kind of part of your point is, you know, knowing when is it okay to say, Hey, I'm not, I'm not really comfortable with this. And most of the incident investigations that I've done over the years, um, especially the more serious ones, um, a lot of times the feedback you get from the people that you, um, the witnesses uh, is that they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel safe before the incident happened. Something was off, so they either felt it, they saw it, they had a gut, you know, feeling that something wasn't right, and they proceeded anyway. And I—that's when I say, that's the guy with the can-do attitude that will end up, you know, sometimes be the one being the victim of a workplace incident.
0: Yeah, and and the safety stuff is not always convenient, right? And and that's why. You know we go on the job sites and we see the nail gun with the safety pinned back, and we see the guard removed on the on the uh on the chop saw, or we see the guard removed on the angle grinder, or we see people not wearing safety glasses, because it's not always convenient to have to deal with those devices or to go find your safety glasses or whatever. Um, but it only takes one incident to really change your mind on how important that stuff is.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in, one of the, in, in most of the incident investigations I do, I have, to, I have to figure out what all the root causes are. And there's usually seven different ones. The one that comes up the most, and this is important for your listeners to hear, is that um, it, doing the job according to procedures or acceptable practices takes more time and effort. Almost in every incident investigation I've done, that root cause comes up all the time. And what it's telling us is to do the job safely, it's going to take more time and effort. As soon as you get that through your head and you accept that, you'll be fine. He'll be yeah. fine. you will be fine. And, but, and you that know.
0: means more money. I, I, that's not going to be the cheapest guy because more time and more, more effort means a little more cost. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Does the, you know we're talking training we're talking fall protection that you mentioned you know some of these things they take they take uh you know it takes more time and it take, there's more cost but in the end hopefully you end up with the results you want the contractor finishes the job on time and nobody got hurt that's a success
0: yeah i think also that you have to as a contractor and as a homeowner both parties have to be cognizant of the fact that Uh, Their insurance might not cover an incident completely if the contractor didn't adhere to certain protocols like that. that, The insurance might deny that claim and say, nope, that's on the contractor because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Um, And then so the contractor's insurance won't pick it up. The homeowner's insurance won't pick it up. And then it's on the contractor to pay for the outcome of that incident. And that contractor might not be able to afford that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's understanding, understand like what your coverage is. We uh, we we did a whole another podcast episode on insurance coverage for contractors and homeowners. It's really important to understand uh, what your policy does and does not cover. Um, and if you read the fine print, it might say that hey, if the contractor does not follow a certain protocol, that the coverage is is no good. So, uh, really important to understand. Uh, what you're getting into insurance-wise in these situations as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to think about.
0: <laughs> there is. And, and like I said, there's th- this is like the last thing on people's minds, I think, when they're uh, going to build a house or remodel a house because they're just so excited to get started and all they can picture is this beautiful thing that they're going to have. But these conversations are super important. And uh, I appreciate you coming on, Terry, and and talking to us about it today.
1: Yeah, I, I'm very glad to have been part of this podcast, and uh, hopefully your listeners, you know, it opened their mind to something they maybe didn't think about before, but mm-hmm. it is important.
0: Would you mind giving us the details for your, for your website and your contact? So if people want to talk to you, whether it's for residential, commercial, uh, safety trainings, uh, safety programs, how do they yeah. contact you?
1: Uh, my website is www.yellowknifesafety.com. So that's the awesome. best way to get a hold of me and you know I'm willing to talk to anybody about you know safety if they have a question so if it's a contractor or a homeowner and you have a concern or question feel free to just pick up the phone and call me or go through the website and get a hold of me and I'll make the time for you. Great.
0: <laughs> well thank you Terry it was great having you on and uh, I want to thank our audience for listening today as well. Uh, please join us again on the next episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. We'll see you next time.
1: Yeah, thank you, Curtis. Appreciate it.
0: If you found us helpful and enjoyed listening, please support us by liking and subscribing here on your podcast platform and also join us on our YouTube channel. We want to continue to bring you high quality content and expert guests and your support truly helps us to continue this journey. If you have any questions for me or my guests or any feedback for us, you can email us at podcast at yourprojectshepherd.com. Thanks again.